Welcome to Get Your Rocks Off with Mick Wall, the world's leading rock and metal writer. Each fortnight, Mick will unpack rock and roll stories. Stories that you probably won't find in print. So pour yourself a Jack and Coke and get ready to get your rocks off. Hi everyone, my name is Steve Glaveski and I'm the founder of No Filter Media. As you know, Mick Wall has spent over four decades interviewing rock stars and chronicling their amazing stories. And today, in part one of this special two-part bonus series of Get Your Rocks Off, I'll be turning the tables on Mick and unpacking his story. Part one of our conversation focuses on the early years, taking in Mick's childhood all the way through to Sounds Magazine, heavy publicity, and the inception of Kerrang! Magazine in 1983. As you might expect, there's plenty of sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but also some really valuable life lessons to take out of this one. So strap yourself in for part one of the Mick Wall story. Mick, good to see you. Nice to see you too, Steve. Uh, always a pleasure to chat. And, uh, you know, today, a little bit different to perhaps what you're normally used to. I mean, you've spent over four decades interviewing the who's who uh in the world of rock and roll but today we're going to turn the tables we're going to talk about the mick wall story you know people know you as perhaps the world's leading rock and metal writer uh everything from sounds to kerrang to classic rock magazine to your books writing for mojo all sorts of stuff you've done it all and uh i guess a good place to start this might be why did you choose to become a writer mick um it's a terrible cliche, but in, it, it feels more like it chose me. It wasn't that I thought, oh, what shall I do? You know, I just was good at writing at school. Mm-hmm. And um, I liked, you know, kids, they draw, you know, like any kid sitting, you know, five, six, seven, whatever I was, drawing and all that stuff. Um, but I would also write mm. <clears throat> pretty much the same story every time. Usually a mad scientist brought a dinosaur back to life and the dinosaur destroyed the world. That was, I wrote that story probably 50 times. Um, but uh, it became the only thing I was really good at. And by the time I got to my teenage years, I had an English teacher who... Uh, uh, He, I was going to say he encouraged me. It was more the encouragement. He, he lavished me with praise. Uh, and this was a really serious guy that never, ever lavished anybody in praise. Mm. And, of course, being a chancer, I kind of played him. I mean, I, I, I wrote a, a story which he loved so much yep. that after that, whenever he would set essays, I would say, oh, sir, I feel I could do this better as a poem. You know, and he go absolutely, Wall. You do a poem. The rest of you, essays. Wall, you do a poem. <clears throat> so I'd write about a ten-line poem, take me five minutes, and all good. Um, and then listening to music, you know, buying albums from about the age of fourteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I got into lyrics. I loved lyrics, so I started writing lyrics. I went from doing poems to get out of doing essays at school to actually writing lyrics 
and so on and so on. And then um, by the time I became, the time I first became a, a writer for a music magazine, I was 19. Yeah. And um, I left school at 16. I had no university education. My dad uh, couldn't read or write. Mm-hmm. Um, my mum left school at 14. So it wasn't a book background and it wasn't a get a great go to uni and get a career it was yeah get out and bring some money in whereabouts did so, you go up Nick? in london in west london mm-hmm. my family all irish so i was the first one born in london so i had an irish accent until i went to school and of course i lost that in three seconds flat in the playground because <laughs> you know you don't want to stick out as a kid and uh, but, did being um, from West London make you a Chelsea fan at all? Fuck no. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and I've got three younger, I'm the oldest, I've got three younger brothers and the second mm-hmm. one down, he actually played for Chelsea. Right. Um, until he got injured. Um, no, I, because my family was Irish mm-hmm. and, I, and I first became whatever age you become when you make choices about football teams and things like that. I was six or seven. At that time, Best was the biggest football star in Britain. Yeah. Georgie Best, the fifth Beatle. And, and the Beatles, Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, the, and their favourite comedian was Dave Allen. And they had zero English friends. Uh, football, soccer, was actually banned in Ireland at that point still. Mm -hmm. So um, everything around me, my culture was Irish. So Georgie Best, was, as a boy, was the greatest player in the world. So obviously I supported Manchester United. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Beatles were my favourite group, not because they were Irish, the two main boys, but because I just loved their music. The first record, my... I forced my parents to buy for me, which she loves you, which was what, 62, 63. So I was yeah. four or five. And I remember that, that actually was a, a real kind of future echo thing because I know what I, I still remember what I loved about she loves you was um, apart from the energy was it when loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, yeah, yeah, yeah. People didn't really say yeah in, in, outside of America, or maybe in Australia they did, I don't know, but we didn't say yeah. And, and it yes. was almost like sex. It was mm. almost like, it was, it was like an electric charge uh, and the harmonies and the way it was trebled and echoed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the song ended, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, mm-hmm. it just sounded like the future. So I was really into music. Well, what what music did you did you grow up on? I mean, I know you mentioned the Beatles, but what did you particularly listen to? And and I mean, five years old. Most people tend to pick up their first record when they're about twelve or thirteen. It's a bit of a rite of passage from childhood into, say, early adulthood, teenage years. Um, but did you start? Did you continue? buying records or having your parents buy your records as a five, six, seven-year-old, or did you come back to it later on? No, no, I didn't because um, my dad was a musician. He was a traditional mm. 
if you play traditional Irish music and Scottish music, um, he had actually left home completely when he was about 14 and gone to Scotland yep. and lived yep. in Scotland for a long time and travelled around as a musician. Uh, he was, for a brief time, he was in a group called Jimmy Shand and his Bandwagon, which was really big in the UK for, you know, a few years. They would released 78 RPM records. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when he met my mum and they started a family, um, he, you know, he, he, started, he became a painter and decorator who also did gigs in the evenings and at weekends. Yeah. So they always had lots of records, but it was their, it was their stuff. I, I just listened to the radio. Mm-hmm. I just was a mental radio listener. And then when I was about 13, the first kind of keyboard cassette recorders were available. And I got one of those and I would just taped songs off the radio. Um, but it didn't get serious in that regard till I was about 14. Until then it was football. Uh, and um, so I loved music. I mean, I'd watch Top of the Pops, which everybody did in the UK. Mm-hmm. And listened to the radio and loved music and really had lots of favourite songs. But when you get to LPs, albums, that moment where you start buying albums with your own pocket money and maybe read music paper. Yeah. That was 14. And at that point, for me, it was uh, David Bowie, uh, Rod Stewart and the Faces, Elton John, T-Rex, the Stones. You know... I'm sure a lot of people did this over the years. You know, they, they, whatever your entry point, mine was 1972, but maybe it was 1992 with a Nirvana record. Mm. And suddenly you go back and discover the Sex Pistols or or, uh, Black Sabbath or whatever it might be. You've got a whole history there to check out. And it was the same for me. I went back and started buying Bob Dylan records and Rolling Stones records and Jimi Hendrix. Um, what was it about rock and roll that enamored you at the time? I mean, you mentioned the yeah, 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 but was it something about perhaps uh, the values you grew up with? I mean, you mentioned no one out, outside of America said yeah. Uh, Britain at the time, I imagine being a, a young boy in London, Perhaps it was a little bit more conservative. I mean, what was it about the rock and roll that really grabbed you at the age of 14 to spend your own pocket money on it? Excitement. Uh, mm. A way out. You know, I mean, a my way family out of what? <coughs> poverty. Yeah. Poverty. So you guys were um, a working class family? Oh, yeah. But yeah. I mean, you know, working class slash underworld, you know, yeah. underground. I mean... Yeah. Um, uh my dad worked for cash mm-hmm. and he worked for himself so he would be hiring people or firing people or he'd be hired or fired mm-hmm. um and it was all these days what you call the black economy i mean i don't think the tax man knew he existed for most of his working life but it made stuff really hard at home so we never had a holiday uh my dad decided once I got to the age of 10 that I was a grown man, so no need for birthday cards or Christmas cards or presents or anything. And then there was a rough patch in my early teens where uh, my parents were so poor that my dad 
persuaded my mum to go to the social security or whatever it was in those days and tell them that he'd left her and to claim benefits. And so it was all kind of someone knocked on the door. It was, don't answer it, you know. <laughs> someone rang the phone. It was like, no, 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 leave that to me. You know, it was all that stuff. So it was shitty. Mm. Uh, but I went to what's called a grammar school, which was for, uh, in those days when you got to 11, you took an, all the kids took an exam called an 11 plus. And, and it was like an intelligence test. And based mm -hmm. on that, uh, your, your senior school, you either high school these days, you went to either a grammar school, if you were really upper echelon university material, or you went to what was called a comprehensive, if you were, you know, smart kid, um, maybe vocational. Uh, and if you really weren't so smart, or these days you'd say academically inclined, you mm -hmm. went to what was called a secondary modern, which was people that would end up working in factories and on building sites. Uh, and it was really clearly delineated. And um, But my parents, A, being Irish, B, being basically illiterate, and having no clue what any of this meant, um, all my friends were getting brand new bicycles if they passed their 11 plus and went to grammar school. And, and I got fuck all. I remember coming home and saying to my mum, um, all, all my friends at school have got letters saying how they did in the 11 plus. Did, did we get a letter? She went, oh, yeah, uh, it's in the drawer somewhere. Mm. You know, so I found it and opened it myself. And, um, and I, I was going to like the best boys grammar school in, in the area. But I begged my parents to change it because I, the thought of going to an all boys school to me was, you know, prison. <laughs> Horror. So I, I got them to change it to go to the second best grammar school, which was co-ed, co yeah. um, which to me made it the first best grammar school because that was the other thing I was into from a very early age was girls. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so it wasn't, it wasn't, the, the connection for me was always about escape. So, you know, like, I mean, by the time punk came along, uh, literally just four or five years after I bought my first albums, um, I was 18 when the Sex Pistols released Anarchy in the UK. Uh, this whole, it wasn't so much the Pistols, but the Clash and all those do-gooder groups, you know, this kind of like, you know, Paul Weller being completely grossed out at the thought of being in a limo, you know. Mm. For me, it was all about being in a fucking limo, diving into a swimming pool, babes everywhere, hookers and blow. I didn't even know what hookers and blow were when I was 14, but that was the dream shitloads of money and a lot of angst about being so rich and famous. I mean, that, the classic rock star Ziggy on the other side of the rainbow. That was the dream for me. And at that time in music, um, you know, that, there was, that was our social media. Uh, in Britain, we had exactly three TV stations. You could have shit, shit two or shit three. I mean, we had BBC, <laughs> But there was no, you couldn't go, oh, I don't want to watch this politics program. Let's go to 203 and see if there's a movie or, you know, yeah. 
National Lampoon's movie with uh, Chevy Chase, the European vacation, where uh, his son, Rusty, they're in the hotel room and, uh, Dad, something's <laughs> wrong with the TV. There's only three channels. <laughs> <laughs> First time I went to America, <clears throat> we're skipping, but I was 22 and I was the publicist, the UK publicist for Black Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And um, to New York, they were doing two nights at Madison Square Garden. And I checked into the Waldorf Astoria. Uh, and I had no idea. You know, there was, I had no idea. This would be a little Taylor stage, you know, or the Queen or something. And um, I got to my room and um, I put on the TV. Man, bang, bang, bang. I, I rang, I rang, I was living in a flat with some friends in London. I rang them in London to go, check it out. I'm like, listen, chung, 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 chung. You know, I just, it was like Roger Rabbit where they, they go through the tunnel mm. and everything turns into colour and cartoons. And it was like going to Toontown. Different dimension. So for, so for me, it was always about getting the fuck out of Dodge. Yeah. Um, my dad literally picked me up and threw me out when I was 17. Wow. I mean, literally, you know, get the fuck out, open the door, slam the door. Uh, not a penny in my pocket, nowhere to go. And uh, I remember my mum running down the street with her purse and giving me like a five-pound note, which... Uh, this is 1976, so I, I don't know what that'd be now, 50 quid? You know, that basically all the money she had. And I slept on floors, I slept on park benches. I um, At 17, I didn't give a fuck because I kind of felt like, well, I'm on the road now, you know. Mm. Hey, of course I'm, I'm Bob Dylan when he was first arriving in New York. I'm... Bowie, before he was famous, I mean, Rod Stewart, mm-hmm. every picture tells a story. All his, when Rod Stewart was good, it's hard for people of your generation, it's hard for anybody under the age of 60 to believe that once upon a time, Rod Stewart was a fucking genius. Mm. And on his early solo albums, was a great songwriter, a great singer. But all his songs are kind of autobiographical it was all about before he got famous dossing around europe busking and having adventures so that's how i felt i thought well, i'm i'm having an adventure um and that's all i wanted i just wanted adventure and uh um i'd so, stopped reading just on yeah, that on. i just wanted to touch on that upbringing so obviously you know your dad working for cash uh, not much money at home being literally thrown out of the door when you were 17 years old um how did that go on to shape you know you and your values and how you approach the world because i know by 18 um you know you found yourself living in in squalor in, in a small flat in London dealing speed to get by and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I'd love to, because, you know, they say that pressure creates diamonds, right? So how do you think that upbringing, you know, shaped you? Well, I, I'm a great believer in nature as much as nurture, 
But mm. the older I get, the more I realize the nurture side is, is, is extremely important. You know, I've got mm. three younger brothers and depending on what all three of them did, one of them like, it talks like that. All right, mate, easy, all right, geezer. He sounds like Steve Harris. <laughs> yeah, all right, mate. <laughs> and, uh, has never read a book in his life. He's a smart guy. I mean, a fucking smart guy. Yeah. But the working world he entered, that's how you talk, right? Mm. And then I've got another brother who sounds really middle class um, and, and so on and so on. And depending on who I'm with, like when I used to work with Iron Maiden all the time, me and Steve were very close. And yeah, when I was with Steve, it might be a bit more like that because that's how it is, you know? Mm. Fuck off. Um, I, I'm, I'm less of that now as I'm much older, but for most of my life, I was just, I morphed into whoever I was with in the room, yeah. American, English, whatever. So how did it affect, it, it, it made me, um, it was sink or swim. Mm. I am Mr. No plan B. Plan I am Mr. No safety net. Mm. So what that means is that, um, you know, no one, no one becomes a well-paid writer or a well-paid anything overnight, but a, a, a writer about music. I mean, I, I think I averaged about 12 quid a week my first year and it was, it was awful. And, um, so for years, I mean, right up to, I think the last, no, no, actually goes beyond that. So at different points in my career, because I was always trying to stop being a writer. I, I thought being a music writer was really wang. I, I didn't read any music papers mm. by the time I'd been thrown out. Uh, it wasn't a small flat. It was a big hippie house. It was an old guest house that all these right. hippies had taken over. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had your own room. Uh, but I, I... So I, I, I worked on a building site. I did quite a few jobs as a dishwasher. Um, I blagged my way into a few jobs as a chef, which was hilarious. What, kind, what was your uh, specialty, Mick? Burning every fucking thing I tried <laughs> to cook. That was my specialty. Um, <laughs> and going out the back, smoking a fag and drinking tea. Uh, I mean, there was one, the best job I ever had as a chef. And this is when I was 25. By the time I was 25, I'd already been around the world. I'd been on telly. I'd been in newspapers and magazines. And, um, but now I'm working uh, as, a, as a dishwasher. As, as, sorry, as the cook at Richmond Ice Rink. Um, and uh, Richmond Ice Rink, because it's mainly kids, and they had an out front desk where you get a sandwich or Coke or whatever. But if you wanted a burger or something like that, they go, chef, two burgers, please. And I'd be out the back with a book in one hand, fag hanging out, bottle of vodka. I go, oh, fucking hell. So I'd have to put the book down, get a burger on, fag. And, and, and that was the best job I ever had because it allowed me to get pissed, read books, smoke, and at the end of the night, nick a few steaks up my shirt, you know. Mm-hmm. So that to me was, I've landed on my feet, you know. But that was, I was also a, a furniture remover. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the only white guy on a gang of black guys that were furniture removers that did everything for cash. Again, all the pre-internet and computers, you could do all this stuff. 
They used to call me Mighty Mouse because I was little, but I was strong. And they were mm. big fuckers, you know, but I, I didn't want to make it seem like I was the weak link. And mm-hmm. um, so I was always getting stuck in. But um, I've kind of lost the point of this, but in terms of values, sink or swim, do yeah. or die. Uh, you know, like in the, in the movies where they go, look, if it's him or me, that's going to die, it's going to be him, not me. Yeah. And, and, and so on, on that, Mick, you know, no plan B, sink or swim, you know, you had all these jobs which nobody really aspires to be a furniture removalist or things of that persuasion or, or burning the, the burgers out in the back of some uh, ice rink. But it was like 1977 when you responded to an ad to, to write for Sounds magazine. What can you tell me about that? Uh, it was actually, yeah, end of 76 and beginning of 77. Mm-hmm. Sounds magazine, which I'd never bought or read, even in the days when I used to buy music papers, because it was kind of the junior music magazine. There was the NME, mm-hmm. Melody Maker. They were the two big, big, big guys. Yeah. And then Sounds, which had launched in early 70s, um, there was nothing wrong with it. It just wasn't the big major player. And they ran an ad that said, writers required, and here was the key point, writers required no experience necessary. (laughs) And I literally thought, that's That's me, no experience. (laughs) And it so happened that um, one of the, girls that lived in the house i was 17 when i moved in they had all been through university and come out the other side so they were all 23 24 25 which to me was fucking ancient at that point but also a different planet because they've been through university their humor mm-hmm. was much more sophisticated i mean i've done grammar school so there was a lot of very middle and upper class people there and I wasn't completely unfamiliar, but it was a different culture, much more elevated. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the women there, so beautiful. Oh my God. And I fell in love with her, but she was like 24, you know, but she Cuba. had a young, <laughs> she had a younger brother, mm-hmm. Pete Mikowski. And Pete Mikowski was a couple of years older than me, so he would have been 19 or 20. And he'd been writing for sounds since he was about 15 or 16, something like that. I don't, I can't remember his story. I think maybe he might have got a job there working as an office junior. In those days, Steve, you'll find this hard to believe, but when you worked in an office, you had lots of juniors who would do all the shit work because you couldn't just put it in a folder on your computer you had to stack up a load of paper and give it to someone and they would take it to the special room and mm-hmm. put it in the file. And, you know, there were tea ladies that would come round once in the morning, once in the afternoon with trolleys of tea. Did you want a biscuit? You know, it was a completely fucking different worlds. So I think he got a job doing some shit job like that and then got into writing. And it was very, like, almost famous. He was like the UK Cameron Crowe because he would send him off to, you know, he, 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 to this day, he's still very good friends with Richie Blackmore because the first time he met Richie in 74 or something, he'd run backstage 
like a fan and just gushed over Deep Purple saying how amazing, Richie, you're my fucking favourite guitarist ever. And he wrote a review which said the same thing. And at that point, people weren't writing reviews like that about Deep Purple or Black Sabbath or Led Zeppelin. Mm -hmm. um, and so Pete became that young teenage star. Now, I wasn't aware of any of this. I just knew her name was Yvonne. I just knew him as Yvonne's younger brother. And he seemed cool. He always seemed to have some good records. In those days, you'd carry around LPs. You'd go to visit your mates. You'd bring a, <laughs> some LPs, you know. Um, and I, I got close to him because he was a lovely guy, but mainly because I wanted to shag his older sister. And I thought this might be a road to it. Turned out it wasn't. But then I was like, what, what do you, so what do you do, uh, Pete? So I, I write for Sounds magazine. And I instantly thought, what a fucking awful job that must be. I mean, you go to a gig and now you've got to write about it. I mean, it's something like a homework assignment, like, fuck that, right? But then two things happened because I was dealing speed and he would come around to buy it from me. And um, uh, uh, he took me, he said, look, do you want to go and see Thin Lizzy? Because I didn't know. I found out soon after I became a writer, you always get a plus one. In those days, you always got a plus one, mm -hmm. couple of tickets. But you run out of friends that will go with you because you're doing this all the fucking time. They might go to a concert three times a year, but you're ringing them every Tuesday, Wednesday, going, do you want to go and see so-and-so? Do you want to go and see so-and-so? And they're like, oh, no. You end up going on your own. You end up going on your own to everything. You stop asking people because it's too much of a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. Or you get to the point where you've attained a certain status. So you know you're going to go backstage at some point, And now you've got the fucking friend hanging. It's just you end up going on your own. And he said, do you like Thin Lizzy? I love Thin Lizzy. It was the year boys are back in town being a hit. He said, do you want to come and see him? Fuck yeah. And we went to the show. And, of course, it was the greatest, one of the greatest shows I'd ever seen because I would only go and see about two shows a year. And then afterwards, we went back, and this was Thin Lizzy in their absolute pomp, uh, pre-punk, the height of 70s cool. And we got in, they had four limos, and we got in one of them with the singer, Phil Lyon, at me and Pete. Mm. There were two page three girls. Do you know what a page three girl is? I don't know if you have that over no there idea. but okay okay no idea okay wow okay well, some uh, idea <laughs> that, that great australian rupert murdoch um his paper the sun uh -huh. um in the 70s pioneered what was known as the page three girl so you buy your newspaper your son and you open it and here's page three and on page three would be this stunning looking bird with enormous tits mm -hmm. uh topless Say hi to Janine. You know, she's today's page three. You this know. was before the age of uh, PC culture. Absolutely. In fact, it was considered rather chic, you know. Yeah, I have a newspaper with topless women in it. Oh, you don't? Oh, I feel sorry for you, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, so he's got a couple of page three girls in the limo. George Best is there. And a few other famous people. And then this horrible, horrible-looking guy that looked like a fucking rat with hideous, spiky orange hair. And at the party, me and Pete are talking to Lina, and this bloke comes over and he goes, Hello, Phil! And Phil goes, 
all right there, Johnny, fuck off yourself, you know, and, and he goes, what do you think of the show? And, and John goes, uh, oh, the show was all right, Phil, but these parties, they're, they're boring. And Phil goes, ah, oh, fuck off, Johnny, go on, get yourself a board. Go on, fuck off now. I said to Pete, who was that horrible bloke? And he goes, oh, that's Johnny Rotten. I mean, Johnny Rotten? Who <laughs> the fuck? He said, yeah, he's in a group. I said, hang on, his name is Johnny Rotten. Mm -hmm. And I think literally, literally two weeks, three weeks later, Anarchy in the UK came out. Fantastic record. Mm. And I couldn't believe it was that bloke. So th this was my first gig with Pete Mikowski as his plus one. I'm thinking, I guess... I guess it's not a bad job, then, a bad you know, job. although he is going to have to write about it tomorrow. That's going to be a bummer. Yeah. And then um, he came to see me. He'd been away for a couple of weeks. And he came to see me. Again, this is all leading up to sort of winter of Christmas 76. And um, I said, where have you been? He goes, oh, no, I've been away. You know, I said, all oh, right, where have you been? He goes, oh, I was in America. I went, America? Wow, holiday? He said, no, no, sir. Do you know Leonard Skinnerd? I went, duh. He said, no, I went to see. He said, you went to see. I said, so what, you, you met them? He goes, I was on the road with them for two weeks. And then he started telling me about, again, you have to remember, this is no mobile phones. Uh, you're in a room, yeah, yeah. and all that is ever going to happen is in that room. Mm. And he talked about being in a high-speed chase with Hell's Angels, guns going off, bars being shot up down in Baton Rouge and, and I'm going fucking hell and then I'm like so what were you doing there and he goes writing about them for sounds and so thick and slow as I am at this point despite all the speed I'm going hmm Tin Lizzie America Ooh. and I said uh, so did you have to pay to go and he went no you don't pay for anything don't pay for anything. I said, and do you get paid? He went, yeah. Cartoon bubbles and stars. And, and then literally, again, it was a couple of weeks after that that this ad came out in sounds. And I still didn't buy sounds. I still, you know. And another friend who was older and knew me, he was like a very, he was a mentor. He was a fantastic guy. Mm -hmm. Probably the most charismatic artist I ever met way more than an Axel or anybody you could care to name. This guy was from the gods. And he said, did you see that ad in sounds? Number one, I don't buy sounds. Number two, what the fuck is he doing looking at sounds? He's from Mount Olympus. He said, yeah, there's an ad. You should have a look. So I went and found it. And, and it literally, no experience necessary. And I went, that's me. And, and you had to send in a, this is a long story, so I'll cut it short. You had to send in a test piece. I sent in a test piece written in Biro uh, about the David Bowie Low album, which had just come out. And I spent hours and hours to the point where the paper, so many crossings out, and, you know, when you're speeding, you know, <laughs> the, the piece of the paper I sent them were like had holes in, and they must have gone, what the fuck is that? But I got a generic Dear John letter 
saying uh, thank you. Uh, you're not successful this time, but if you ever think about contributing reviews from your local area, because that was the thing, you, you could be a useless cunt who can't write a word, but if you lived in some far off fucking town and and thin Lizzie to play, and you could piece together, their editors would polish it up and. You know, they just wanted, it had to be anything outside of London. Mm -hmm. Of course, I knew nothing. My local area, so I rang them. I said, I got your letter about my, so I would like to, I said, okay, where do you live? And I went, London. And you could, now I see them going, fuck, you know. They just went, to be polite, they went, okay, we'll do a test piece. So I did another test piece. I reviewed in the In Your Mind album by Brian Ferry. Same thing. Sent it in. Nothing. Mm. So I rang them up and they went, oh, oh yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, no, that was it. Um, nothing. So I left it. And six months later, uh, I'm, I'm drunk, uh, having a few days off from work. And uh, I get back to the house. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for matches. I'm pulling out in drawers and I find this letter with reviews in your local area. And because I'm drunk, I rang them and pretended the earlier conversation had never happened. And they went, Oh, great. So where do you live? And I went, London. And you could oh, do a test piece. <laughs> so I wrote about the you, Todd Rundgren's Utopia album, Oops, Wrong Planet. Same deal, sent it in and nothing. And then I, so I, I just fucking rang them, got up my courage and rang them and thought, this yeah. is me. This is the last call I will ever make about this. And the guy said, yes, pretty good. Um, how about you go and review a band for us? Oh, God. Uh, I said, what kind of, you know, music are you into? Like Bowie, Stones, Dylan. And they went, okay, there's a group called The Lurkers. And they're going to be playing the Red Cow Pub in Hammersmith on Tuesday night. How about you review that? And inside I'm going, sounds shit. You know, I went, absolutely. Sink or swim. And so I went to this fucking awful gig at this shit pub. Funnily enough, the first gig ACDC ever played in London was at the Red Cow oh. in Hammersmith. And I wrote about this fucking thing. And my girlfriend at the time typed it up. And I sent it in. Nothing. Nothing. So I ring them up. And the guy goes, yeah, it's very good. It's in the paper this week. Oh. What? I run to the fucking shop. And there it is with a picture. And in this very long, boring way, I, this was how I got my break. Mm -hmm. And from that moment on, every week or two, I'd be sent to some abysmal gig to review a group no one had ever heard of. But I would review it as if it was, if it, as if it was the Stones at Madison Square Garden, because um, it was I, to me every review I wrote could be my last. Yeah. And um, and this was the dawn of punk. So suddenly, there's a million punk bands every night. I mean, music is exploding. Music doesn't explode anymore, ever. But back then, it, it, it literally was, it was like the new internet, you know, it, it, the punk, you know, it was, you were either connected into that scene or you totally had no idea. And so I connected into it and um, 
But years later, actually, it made me think, when I was the editor of Classic Rock magazine, I remember young writers, I would, might ring them up and say, listen, uh, thinking, he's a talented young guy, I'll give him something, you know. And I can remember this happened a lot. I'm going to pick a name out of the blue just, just because I can't think of anything else. Um, what do you know about... Uh, uh, what do you know about uh, Black Star Riders? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Well, do you fancy? Well, I don't really know much about it. And I used to immediately think, well, I didn't used to think anything. I just never used to ring them ever again. Because to me, that guy was fucking useless. Mm-hmm. Um, my, one of my, my second ever story in Mojo, they said to me, what do you know about Hawkwind? I went, everything, everything. What do you need? I went, oh, that's amazing, because no one here knows anything about them. I went, leave it to me. And then I went away and researched every fucking thing I could find out about Hawkwind. That is my core value right there. You know, these days we say, don't ask permission. Uh, just, ask what is it? Don't ask permission, just say sorry afterwards or yeah, something? Yeah, ask for forgiveness, don't ask for permission. There you go. I was... Don't ask for permission. Mm. And if you get caught, maybe a bit of forgiveness you beg for, but, but you know, it, it was exactly that. And my fortune was that I, at that time in the world, you could get a shitty job drinking vodka and flipping burgers. You could be the only white guy on a black crew of furniture removers that at the end of the day, they just paid you in cash and smoked a joint and, Mm. you know, that was my fortune. It made life really, really hard. But um, I I hated 90% of the punk gigs I went to because I wasn't sent to the good ones. I was sent to the no-hopers. But very occasionally you'd get a good one. And uh, I would seize on it. And, um, and so built it, built it slowly, 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 and um, did every shit job going because there literally was no alternative. I mean, some of my contemporaries still, still either live with their parents or have a, a property that their parents bought for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen, I'm, it's jealousy, really. I'm not. I'm not trying to put them down. I'm. I'm. I'm jealous that they had that kind of support network. Yeah. Because obviously, in my field, not the musicians. This is why I get on with musicians because they're nearly all like me. They come from. Mm. Like the opening line of my Black Sabbath book was the opening line is, "They were scum and they knew it." Yeah. That was me. Me. That's why I related to Sabbath because none of them. It was it was fucking make this happen at whatever fucking cost. We'll just fuck off to the factory. So well, that's probably that was always that was my core value. Double clicking on as well because you you talk about this core value of no plan B, sink or swim, and uh, you know with Black Sabbath being uh, you know from Birmingham, it was either like you said, it was make it in rock and roll or, or go back to the factories and you know, like Tony Iommi and risk having your, your fingers chopped off and whatever, whatever's left of them. Um, but in your case, I mean, it was that persistence, you know, you got rejected several times before you finally found out that your, you know, your gig review uh, was in the paper um, or was in sounds rather. Now, I guess if you had uh, a plan B or a plan C, if you were one of those contemporaries who had their parents buy them a house or you had 
you know, gone off into college and managed to score yourself a comfortable gig somewhere paying you a decent amount of quid, you perhaps wouldn't have tried so hard. You would have taken the first rejection on the chin and just moved on with your life. Absolutely. And I, I so really did. And um, there were weeks and months between that initial, have you seen that advert in sounds and being published? It was a year. Mm. And, um, and even then, because I still wasn't very good, I used to have a dictionary by the side of my typewriter. Because I'm young, I thought being a, a mark of a good writer was to use big words, you know. So I remember in, um, I once said someone, the performance was meritorious. And uh, the editor said to me, do you write with a dictionary next to you? No, no, who, who would do that? He goes, well, where do you get meritorious from? I had no idea. He said, you know, it just means noteworthy, praiseworthy. I went, oh, yeah, yeah. He said, well, just say noteworthy. This is sounds. It's not, you know, fucking Greek philosophy. You know, yeah. I was like, oh, absolutely. I walked away thinking, what a cunt, you know. I do my best. And, um, but values, you know, I, always, I, I, I struggle with that because my value was always the end justified the means. Mm-hmm. And I totally don't believe that. But that was the rule I had to live by. And even at this stage of my career, um, when it comes to money, I, I need therapy because it, 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 it becomes tribe, not even tribal, primitive. In my head, if someone fucks me up over money, I can't get past it you know i will leap out of the bushes with a knife you know and people will be going but mick it's only 500 only 500 i mean i don't jump out of the bushes but in my mind that person is on the yeah. shit list forever yeah and that is so stupid that's self-harming that's damaging there's no upside to that Mm-mm. Um, all I can say is that my way of my way of trying to make that better is through my children. I have three children. Mm-hmm. How old are you? Man, they, I, my oldest daughter is twenty. Mm-hmm. She's just begun her second year English and creative writing degree wow. course at university. Next generation. Um. My ardent wish is that she can write my books for me and I can just sit there and collect the money. Um, My next daughter down, uh, she goes to a performing arts college. She's 17 Mm -hmm. and she's really, really good. And my boy, who is nearly 15, he's doing, he's just started his GCSE course and he might be the smartest of the three. Um. But I decided long before they were born, long before I was even married to my wife, that when I had children, they would all fucking go to university. And I wasn't going to listen to any of this bullshit about, yeah, but some people, they're, they're just not suited to university. I said, yeah, and I've fucking met millions of them and they've all got degrees and great jobs and they're all fucking idiots, but they still went to university and they now work in publishing or television. Mm. I know they're twats but they're well-paid, comfortable twats are not going to be 
smoking a fag over the chip fryer at Richmond Ice Rink. Um, or in my case, um, I, I've tried to walk away from music writing so many times. I mean, the, the, the most recent time was in the mid-90s. And what did I end up doing? I ended up doing terrible jobs that didn't pay well and uh, eventually went back to writing because I needed the money. And then finally, I, I was about 40. I think I was 40 mm -hmm. before I reconciled to maybe I'll just be a writer. <laughs> and at that, at that point, I, I, once I just chilled the fuck out, um, things started happening much better for me. Mm. Um, it's still really hard. You know, um, I literally got an email this morning. I'm, I'm doing this because of computer over here, uh, confirming some money I've got coming in. And I was saying to my wife, Linda, you know, that's Christmas. We're going to be okay till Christmas. And then in January, you know, we'll worry about that. But by the time we get there, hopefully I've done more things and have some money coming in January. You know, I live in a perpetual state of, of uh, hunter gathering. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, that's yeah, fascinating. Cool. I mean, just to unpack that a little bit, I mean, given that you've spent, you know, 43 years writing, whether it was books. Published, published writing. Published. Yeah, published Longer writing. than that writing. Well, longer than that actually writing. Yeah, of course. Um, but to still have that sort of, you know, whether it's anxiety or a form of self-doubt as to whether or not this is what you should be doing after all this time, after all the success that you've had on paper. Uh, it, it's, it's just interesting because I think it's something that so many people perhaps listening can relate based on whatever they're doing with their lives. There's always that question, should I be doing something else? Is there something more? And sometimes success can kind of quell that anxiety, but in your case, like you've, you've obviously still got some of these question marks even now at, at the age of, uh, what are you, 60, 62 now? Um, 62. Yeah, it's just an interesting. I mean, I know I don't look a day over 31. I was going to say 21. <laughs> the, only thing, the only thing that's missing is the hair that you had when you were 21. And there's a, the old mullet that I saw when you were interviewing Alice Cooper in something like 86. Yeah, but go back to 76 and you'd see, you'd see, you know, this like hair like this. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, Steve, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right so so while you were at sounds i mean you were you were like you said covering punk bands most of which you had no interest for you didn't really care for you know you covered new wave rockabilly all that sort of stuff you were at sounds for a couple of years but then um an opportunity came up to go and join a uh pr firm um by the name of heavy publicity which almost sounds like heavy a publicity uh publicity firm so what can you tell me about that? I mean, why did you leave the world of writing to pursue PR? Was it because it was just another way to make quid and be in the, in the business of, of rock and roll? Totally. That was it. Um, plus, I felt I'd be good at it. But um, uh, 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 in the summer of 78, mm -hmm. I've been a published writer for Sounds for about 10 months. Um, my mum and dad had let me go back but they'd given my bedroom away to my youngest brother. So I had to sleep in the same bedroom as two other brothers, but in like a camp bed. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, you know, this is temporary, you know. And um, I got a job paying £40 a week cash uh, working at an independent label called Step Forward Records, which was owned by Miles Copeland, who we now know as the manager of the police. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the manager of the police then too, except they were the uncoolest old man punk band in London. Everybody thought they were a complete rubbish joke, which they kind of were. Um, but he hooked up with Mark P, Mark Perry. Mark P was the guy that brought a sniffing glue, the world's first kind of, not the world's first, but in terms of punk, the first punk fancy. And so it was Step Forward Records, Illegal Records, Deptford Fun City Records. It was four, four people in a room, and I was one of them. And uh, the famous groups were... Uh, the police would become famous after I got sacked, but the police, Chelsea, Alternative TV, The Fall, Clock DVA, Squeeze, uh, and a million other groups that you've never heard of and I can't remember. Um, we had some reggae artists, and it was really horrible because the guy that ran the publicity was a really fucked up guy i don't don't really want to get into it he made my life miserable Mm. so i used to spend most of my time because everything was in the one building in off portobello road and downstairs was where they did distribution they would literally get the records put them in boxes and send them to the shops and down there was the reggae guys and they were always smoking these enormous jumbo sized joints so I used to, all right, guys, you know, I'll oh, just come in to say hi two hours later. <laughs> They'd be yelling and I says, Mick, where are you? <laughs> so I hated that job and eventually they sacked me. But just before they sacked me, I was still writing reviews for sounds occasionally. But this was my job. And, and much as I hated it, you know, it paid £40 cash every week. And I was at gigs every night. And instead of being a lowly, lowly stringer for Sounds Magazine, I was Mick from Step Forward. You know, it conferred a certain, it was a step up. Yeah, good status. Even though, even though I was really miserable. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I, I uh, moved out of my mum and dad's and took a room in a flat. And I think, I think literally two weeks after that, they sacked me. And I... I'm in a flat and I've got, I've, I've been sacked. So what am I going to do? And so I got out my little contacts book, which really was a book in those days. And uh, I began at A and worked my way through, just rang every person I knew in the business, which wasn't that many, and just said, look, if there's anything you need doing, you want a press release writing or someone to come in and answer the phones, you know, whatever. And virtually the first person I rang was one of the partners at Heavy Publicity. And uh, she said, actually, one of our guys is about to take a leave of absence for 12 weeks. He takes care of regional press, which is big artist comes in, the partners would sort out interviews in the NME and Dame or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. The regional guy would sort out your interviews with the Manchester Evening News, the Glasgow Herald, the... The uh, dumb fuck middle of nowhere weekly, and um, uh, and so that was who what he did. And they said, if you want to come in and do that for twelve weeks, we'll pay you fifty pounds a week. 
So again, did I know what I was doing? No. What I heard was, we'll pay you £50 a week. I had to get uh, two trains to get there, a bus, and, um, and back again. It was a fucking schlep, but I loved it. I fucking loved it. They did the PR for Dire Straits, just as they were having their first hit with Sultans of Swing. Mm -hmm. uh, Black Sabbath, who, were, who had just fired Aussie, so that could look dodgy. They did Journey, Ario Speedwagon, Sticks. They did The Tubes, uh, The Damned, Hawkwind, um, loads of other ones that were small. And my first day in the office, I'd been in this really grungy punk step forward records. Everybody with, even me, with like spiked black hair, pale, you know, uh, and now I'm in this place where everybody's tan and long hair and wearing their journey T-shirts <laughs> and their fucking gold lame tour jackets. But it's really a lot of money. It's money. It's a cool office. And um, I sit opposite this beautiful blonde woman who is like the secretary, PA, whatever she is. And the partners are over there and they're really sophisticated. And literally my first morning, I am talking to the Roch, I don't know what your geog people's geography of the UK is, but when I say Rochdale, I mean somewhere up north, which mm. in the UK means somewhere, you know, you don't want to be, um, a minor fuck all paper, but I'm getting on great with them. And um, as I'm doing this, the, 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 the woman partner, who shall remain nameless, came over and put a mirror, this is like 10.30 in the morning, put a mirror on the desk in front of me with a couple of huge fat white lines and she'd emptied out a bar. I haven't got one. Have I got one? Uh, emptied out like an old fashioned biro. She'd taken the, the, the ink thing out. So just and shoved it up my nose. And I just like a pro, you know, yeah. Yeah. Just a second, Mike. You know. <laughs> yeah. But no, they're a really great band. And I'll send you the uh, LP, you know, <laughs> and um, I remember, she later told me she was so, in, that's when she knew I would be great because I was so cool. I just did it, got back to work. And that to them was a mark of class. You know, that, that to them was equivalent to going, you see, I got a first class degree in, in Wankonomics. Uh, yeah. So I'm wonderful. That to them was like, he's the real deal. Now I didn't even know what that powder was. I was praying it wasn't speed because um, by the, ten, the end of my tenure as a speed dealer, I, I couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't. To this, you know, I just couldn't. Um, it really fucked me up. There was no buzz, no joy. Mm -hmm. It was like taking a pill of ultimate depression and paranoia. You know, it just would fuck me up. Mm -hmm. But I did it, man, because a bit of my do-or-die brain knew if the chick was going to do this, and I go, oh, Ooh, not for me, not thank me. you. That yeah. closed a fucking door somewhere. Mm. So it wasn't about the powder. It didn't matter if it made me feel good or not. I, I just understood this was an olive branch. This was a, a test. This was a... Mm. Uh, so I did it. Now, it turned out it wasn't speed. It was cocaine. Uh, I'd only ever done cocaine once before, and it was in the company of this same woman which is a great story, which I'll tell you in a minute. Um, um, 
And I wasn't, you know, I, it, cocaine, I mean, it, it really didn't do much for me. I, a lot of people used to say this. I don't know about now because we live in the age of super drugs, but cocaine would give you a buzz for 15 minutes and then, then you'd need another one and then another one and now you're all gacked out and fucked. Yeah. But in those days, heavy publicity, because it was the glam PR, you know, we, we didn't do, we did the damn. But that's because they were one of the punk originals. We did Blondie for five minutes. We did a few like that. Um, but we did the superstar band. And, and literally their USP, as we call it now, was, oh, hi, Steve. You're, you're coming in to interview, um, uh, who did I say we did? You're coming in to interview Mark Knopfler. Mm -hmm. Cool, man. Turn up at 11, 2, whatever it is. You turn up. We go, Steve, baby. Shh. There you go. And if you had any sense, you'd take it. And in those days, people did. I mean, cocaine in 1979 was like saying champagne. Would you like some vintage caviar? What are you going to go? Oh, no, I'll have a bacon sandwich. No, it's all part of the trip, you know. And, mm -hmm. and that's when I really understood. It wasn't about is this guy a good guy? Does he like the album? Is it going to be a good, it was, it was, no, 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 no. Whatever band we do, they're going to write and say they're amazing because they just like being here. Mm. And it was true. So we would have journalists, the most famous music journalists in the UK ever, would come by every week. We would load them up with LPs that we knew they were just going to go and sell and buy drugs with. But we'd have the glamorous blonde assistant racking out the lines uh, bottles of brandy, champagne. That was all of it. And, and we'd never get rid of them. We had one guy stayed for three days. Um, it's true. And then, and then um, the, a really funny one was um, a guy called Malcolm Dome, who these days is a very famous metal writer. And in 1979, um, he got his break with a little magazine called Record Mirror. Mm -hmm. which was a pop magazine. It did not do rock. But, but suddenly um, the editor told us he had this new guy who was going to write about rock and he would come to our office and interview Hawkwind. We couldn't believe our fucking luck. <laughs> Hawkwind in record mirror. It was like, okay. So this little guy turns up. He's the editor of the Jewish Chronicle or something like that. He's got a YAML car. Mm -hmm. He's really hyper, really hyper. Hi, I'm Malcolm. I'm Malcolm. And we were like, man, come in. Yeah. He's like, oh, no, I don't. I don't. And we went, oh, okay. Uh, joint? Oh, no, no, not for me, not for me. Okay. Brandy? You know, no, 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 no. And now we're, we're, we've never encountered this before. So I remember saying to him, okay, well, what can we get you? Because it was unthinkable not to get them something. He said, uh, uh, tea would be fine. Tea would be fine. I went, okay, but tea and he went, donuts. So we made, we got, made him a huge pot of Earl Grey tea. We sent the girl out. She came back with a, a tray of 24 donuts, you know, and because that was, we didn't know how else to, you know. He ate like one of them. Um, we threw the rest away, I think, because nobody ate um and uh, so that was our that was our trip and i and i i really got into it and i and i started to know management record companies 
And I, it really, that really impressed on me how lowly music journalists were on the totem pole. Mm. You had to play nice with them because, uh, particularly with rock music, because in Britain in those days, you could not get a rock record played on the radio. You could not get a rock band on the television. And you fucking could not get them in the enemy uh, or record mirror because by now it's all, it's all post pistols. Um, I can't think of a big in the late seventies, but you know, the real, the real, you know, you've got the fall on the cover of the enemy and I'm ringing them going, Hey, journey are in town next week. You know, they're like, they're like, fuck off you piece of shit. And because these music papers sold records, they really did. So without them, you couldn't have a career in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to take them seriously. So we, so they were despised and they were treated like invaders, spies, not to be trusted, not one of us, because um, they weren't. Uh, I remember taking some guy from the NME to review Camel uh, in Brighton. And he hated every fucking second. But I still take him backstage after the show and we all make nice. And, he, and then he writes this really shitty review in The Enemy about what a load of boring old farts they were and what a f- fucking wanker the PR was trying to get on his good side, you know. Yeah. It's like you knew it was coming, but. Yes. Yeah. So um, uh, before we. we- Go on. I mean, I definitely need us to close the loop on that uh, cocaine story with the secretary from from the PR firm, Mick. She she wasn't a secretary. She was uh, a co-owner of the company. Okay. And what had happened was, uh, in those days, I mean, I guess I was trying to explain that how how far you would go to curry favour with the music press. So um, you hated them, but you had to treat them like gold. And so a, a favoured trick was if you had an artist that you knew was not an easy sell because um, they weren't new wave, uh, you would do the coach trip. You'd hire a luxury bus and say, we're going to Birmingham, we're going to uh, Brighton, we're going somewhere, and what's going to happen is we're going to get on the bus at 1 p.m., Everybody's going to get fucking slaughtered because we're going to provide all the booze and all the drugs. We're going to go to the show. You won't even fucking remember the show, but then we'll be back on the bus, more booze, more drugs, and, and tomorrow you're going to write a fucking good review or you're never going to be on the bus again. And it worked every fucking time. Um, so on one of these trips, it was to see Rory Gallagher at the NEC in Birmingham. And... Um, it was exactly as I described. It was tremendous fun, complete de- bacchanal. Don't forget, I was 20 years old at the time, and, and it was, you know, washing dishes, you know. So um, uh, at the end of it, uh, the bus always would end up in, in town in London. But in those days, there's no fucking Uber. There's no all-night trains or nothing. It's like, how are you going to get home? And this particular woman, one of the bosses, said to me, where do you live? And I told her, and she said, that's just up the road from me. Why don't I give you a lift back? I was like, fucking great, you know. So we're driving back about two in the morning. Uh, We've seen Rory Gallagher, who, by the way, was absolutely amazing. Mm. Um, And she said, oh, do you want to, should we stop for a coffee at my place before I drop you off? 
I really wanted to go home, but do or die, right? So I went, oh, yeah, that'd be great. This is how I was. I mean, to me, it was grasp at any fucking straw. It led me to a lot of trouble and a lot of negative stuff for years, but it was all I had. And um, it wasn't just negative, but negative as well as positive. So we go in, and I want you to picture whatever cliche comes to your mind of the late 70s. I'm with a, a female representative that is a music mogul. Mm-hmm. And we go into her house, and man, it is white, uh, I don't know what you call it, that thick shag carpet, white shag carpet, you know, you, you buried into your ankles when you stand on it. Yeah. Gold records all over the wall. And I'm like pretending I'm obviously this is me every day, you know. Um, And uh, and she plays me the the, an album isn't due to be released for a few weeks by some superstar group. Did you hear the demos from uh, Barbados? I'm like, yeah, listening to the demos. Yeah, it's it's cool. Thinking this is weird, you know. And uh, and then she pulls out a compact. You know, where you powder women, they would open it, the little mirror, and they do it. She pulls out this, and she's gunk, 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 gunk. Um, and again, I thought, oh, God, not speed, you know. She said, no, it's Coach. Oh, no, it's Charlie. Charlie. Okay. So I had a bit of that. She got out the brandy. I'm now completely out of my head. And it's about four in the morning, and she says to me, she, these are her exact words. She says to me, right. Now, am I going to drive you home to mummy and daddy, or are you going to take me upstairs and fuck the ass off me? In my, head, in my head, take me home to mummy and daddy, please. She was about 12 years older than me, which was a lot in those days. Mm-hmm. And she was not the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. And I went, I'm going to take you upstairs and fuck the ass off you. And so we went upstairs and I'd had so much coke, which I'd never had before. And I so was not turned on. I couldn't get it up. Could not get it up. So then I went as a joke, an embarrassed joke. I said, it's a shame you don't have any, um, vib- shame you don't have a vibrator. She went, opened the drawer. Oh, fucking hell, man. Anyway, this goes on for about two hours. Finally, she's she's satisfied. Uh-huh. And then she says, right, well, it's uh, 6.30 in the morning. Uh, my husband will be home in a minute. I suggest you fuck off. So, six, I'm like, of course, you know, absolutely. So at 6.30 in the morning, I totter down to the bus stop to wait for the first bus, mm-hmm. completely out of my brain. Utterly freaked out. Um, And that's the woman that offered me the job for 12 weeks and blah, blah, blah. So by then... Just quickly, mate. I mean, her husband's coming home at 6.30 a.m. What's he doing? He was another famous music business person. There you go. So he was out all night doing his thing. Fair enough. um, No, I think he was away and his flight got in and he, it was, you know... I didn't ask. I knew who he was. As soon as I was, he might, he probably wasn't coming home. It was just a way of getting rid of me. You know, I just wanted to fucking leave, you know, and she wanted me to leave. So I left 
but I didn't get a lift. Um, not that I remember. So, so by the time I go to work for it, it's a couple of months later, and this is all forgotten. It's not forgotten, but it's never mentioned again. And um, uh, and and I guess my point really was, um, I learned the music business double think through working at that place, which was for music journalists, give them a good time all the time. Mm-hmm. And then get rid of them as quick as you can. Yeah, and uh, you you actually went on to make partner at that PR firm as well. I became a partner in about six months. Okay, and because and I was good, I was good. Yeah. I was. Guess what? I was good at talking shit and and partying and being everybody's best mate. And it was the late seventies. I mean, I told you my dream was the Rolls Royce into the swimming pool. Um, uh, I remember taking, I went from regional press to what they called the teeny mags, which was Jackie and true love and photo secret love and uh, boy meets girl and all that. They had loads of those magazines in the UK in those days. And they were just magazines for teenage girls, mm-hmm. true life, love stories. And oh, will he ever see me again? You know? But they would have pop columns in them. Yeah. And I used to take the pop writers out. I remember taking one to the post office tower in London. In those days, I don't know what, you, I don't think you can now, but maybe you got a lift right up into the sky and you sat in the restaurant. It was a revolving restaurant. It went around slowly so that you get the whole London skyline as you're having lunch. Mm-hmm. I remember being in there and chopping out lines of cocaine on a side plate because we were revolving. So at a certain point, your eye line is there's no way to, you know, you're, <laughs> Um, and so I was the fucking darling of all the teeny mags. Um, cocaine was a great entree into everything. And we always had loads of it wherever we went. And it became known as soon as I turned up, or one of the other people turned up, it's the fucking party starts now. Mm-hmm. And that's how we got uh, loads of bands pressed that weren't popular. If, if they were a popular band, you didn't have to do that song and dance, but most of the bands you work on aren't popular. That's why they pay you money. And we would do things like, um, you know, I did, way before your time, in the days of vinyl records or albums would be 12 inches of plastic. Mm-hmm. We would tape, we get a gram of speed, depending on the journalist. If it was your regular common or garden music journalist, we would get a gram of speed and sellotape it inside the the sleeve you know the, the old-fashioned yeah. lp sleeve, and bike it over to them for review we never got one bad review when we did that if it was the editor of the enemy i say the enemy we never did it to the editor of the enemy but if it was an editor or a national newspaper music journalist someone you know grammar coke biked over one time we had a group playing in edinburgh who had had one, literally five minutes of punk fame in 78, and it's now 1980, and no one wants to fucking know. And I knew a music journalist who came from Edinburgh, and I said to him, um, you fancy a drink tonight? Yeah, yeah. I said, he said, where do you want to go? I said, how about Tiffany's in Edinburgh? He went, what? I said, I'm sending over a motorbike right now. You and me, we're going to ride down to Heathrow. We're going to get on the shuttle. Because in those days, this is long before 9-11 and all that shit, it was like a bus. You'd get on that plane at Heathrow and they'd come round with a ticket machine and take the money off you for the ticket. 
So I said, we're going to, and the shuttle would go every two hours or something, every hour. So we, I, I'm, we're both on the back of motorbikes to Heathrow to make the six o'clock flight to Edinburgh, where by the time we arrive, we're pissed. The band come on, they're fucking useless, but we have a lovely time. And then we spend the night at his mum and dad's place in Edinburgh. And then the next morning, get the flight back to Heathrow, ready for go to work. What a great review he wrote, you know? Of I mean, course. yeah. Mm. And, and it's important to say, look, forget, uh, it's like if we used to talk about payola in the 50s, it makes you think like, oh, wow, that really was another time. I mean, yeah, it was another time. But if you think it's any different now, if you think music journalists are purists that could never, never be influenced, you know, if, mate, this is human fucking nature. Yeah. And I used to think, I used to think, we used to plant stories in the Daily Mirror and the Sun, mm -hmm. but we'd sit there making them up, laughing our asses off, <laughs> making them up. And they'd be in the Sun the next day. Mm -hmm. And I used to think, if it's so fucking easy for us to do this with rubbish pop music, what if you're a politician? What if you're a, a, an opinion shaper? What if you're one of the ruling elite that runs the fucking world? Mm. How easy is it for them? And so at that point, I completely gave up on believing anything I ever read in any newspaper. Well, that's been amplified. Except for, except for those one bits that I do believe because they uh, connect with things I already feel might be true, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, the way of the world, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's an interesting point you make about politicians, especially in the four decades since. I mean, nowadays with... You know, the barriers to entry for content creation being so low with the internet and 4 million blog posts being published every single day, you know, the amount of nonsense out there that uh, is biased, either left-leaning or right-leaning that goes on to influence and, and divide people. And, uh, and that's before you get to virtue signaling, cancel culture. Yeah. Uh, I can't say him or her. I've got to say they. Uh, you've got to have your, you've got to signal your gender pronouns, Mick. I, okay. you know, I can tell you're a male based on a, based on the, the, the video. <laughs> well, I am right now, but <laughs> any minute now I might change my mind. You, tomorrow you might identify as a dancing hyena. <laughs> well, that was an early influence, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the PR firm, so, so you, you were there for six months, you made partner, yeah. but you didn't. Obviously now you, we know that you didn't spend the next few decades in, in, PR and uh, public uh, in public relations. How long were you Just there? under two years. Just under two years. Why did you move on? Why? Yeah. Um, by the time I became a partner, me and my partner, he's dead now. His name uh, was Joe O'Neill. Mm -hmm. um, he, he was a few years older. I'm, I'm 21. He's 25. Again, that's a significant gap at that age. Mm -hmm. He's been in the business, obviously, longer than me. He's the senior partner, um, and he's a coke fiend because in the late 70s, early 80s, everybody in the business was a coke fiend. You just didn't, you didn't say he's a coke fiend. You went, oh, no, he's great. He's great. I mean, we would turn up for meetings, and, and you, it was like in those days everybody smoked. So, so the, you'd pull out your pack. If you met, first met someone, you'd pull out a packet of cigarettes and you know, would you like a cigarette? It was a, it was a very nice socially um, 
welcoming thing to do. And, and we just took it to the next step with, you know, we had a box of cigarettes on the table. You would help yourself, you know, um, but we would also have a box of cocaine. And if we turned up at a meeting, we always bought cocaine and we would bill the bands back. So on the invoice, it would say whatever you'd done that month and the expense and under expense, it would say champagne and flowers for the band. And that was your cocaine bill. And that'd be often nearly always bigger than what you were charging them as a fee. But it nearly did always go with the bands and just to keep the, the, the thing on the road. Um, so with that in mind, by the time I become partner, every time he chops out a line, he, push, he chops out two and pushes the mirror over the, because we're both on the phone constantly. Same for me. And, and, and within a year, we had snorted our way through all of the profits into an enormous overdraft, into having our phones cut off because we couldn't pay the phone bill. You know, we couldn't pay the £50 phone bill, but we've got 300 quids worth of coke on the desk, which we go, these fucking phone people, they're fucking unreasonable. <laughs> you know. um, and uh, it just it got to a really bad place where he was really gone. I mean, he ended up seeing a psychiatrist... Mm. He started seeing creatures in his hands. Look, can you see it now? And you'd be going, yes, thinking. Oh. And uh, I mean, we'd be in meetings, you know, with new clients. And you'd go, tell me something in the middle of, yeah. And then they'll be touring in October and the hour. You go, yeah, yeah. Tell me something. Can you see any small white creatures in my hand? You know, you'd be going, so I bailed out. I mean, I, no, I didn't, I didn't bail out completely, but I started uh, needing time off. Mm -hmm. A week here, a week there. And, and then I came back from one week off and the place had burned down. What happened there? Take a guess. Insurance job. You, you might say that. I can possibly comment. Of course. Um, and I came in and I went, oh, fuck me, Joe. Really? And at that point, you know, the, game, the jig was up. I just couldn't. I couldn't. I just couldn't. It was too fucking much. We've got police crawling all over the place. and I mean, it all paid out. And, you know. So I made a, a career decision mm -hmm. to go and become the dishwasher in a burger restaurant, wow. which Isn't paid me £10. Uh, Isn't that a tough? I mean, I guess it was having, insanely tough. Yeah. It was insanely tough because I'm 20, 22 at this point. Yeah, but um, you have given where I'd been to turn up at five thirty in the afternoon, having spent all day lying in bed fucking around with some chick or drugs mm -hmm. or something. To a big old sink, they used to they get a bottle of white wine, open it and put it by the sink, and you'd be washing these dishes, and then you grab the wine, gum 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 gum. On the fag breaks, you have a joint because all the guys in there were young; they were all either younger than me or same age, mm -hmm. and they were all starting bands or do you know hoping one day to. And I just kept my fucking gob shut because I I. I 
you're not going to make any friends by going, oh, you've got a little band and you're hoping to get a deal. Yeah. Um, well, when I was on the road with Thin Lizzy, you know, it's, it's, you know forget it. Um, you know, by then I'd also had every drug that was available to man, you know, on a regular basis. Um, and I just kept my gob shut. At the end of every night, they give you a £10 note. Mate, that to me, it was a joy after, after have you seen the creatures in my hand and burning the office down. And I would be sent off in a car to Thin Lizzy's office to sit in reception all day until they gave us a fucking check. You know, pitiful stuff, pitiful yeah. stuff. Um, yeah, I'm going to wash dishes. I'm going to chat up gorgeous waitresses smoke a joint on my break, drink one or two bottles of wine and a nice £10 note at the end of it. I mean, £10 40 years later is, I don't know what it is now, 30, 40, I don't know. But it was mm -hmm. more than enough to, to get me through the next couple of days. And I'd do a couple of shifts like that a week, ended up doing five. Um, it, it, was a, it was kind of a rehab it, it, rehabilitation in some ways because it was so far from what I'd just been doing. Mm -hmm. It kind of helped me get back to earth. But in the middle of a shift one night, I'm up to my fucking shoulders in, in dishwashing. There's a phone call. I go to the phone in the office and it was the tour manager of Black Sabbath uh, who I've, I've, you know, I've been working with. Dio would join the group. I did the Heaven and Hell album. Yeah. And uh, got great press for it. And he said, uh, long story short, he just basically said, um, um, we're doing two nights at Madison Square Garden. We'd really like to bring some people out from the UK press because we're coming back to the UK, start of 81. Um, do you think you could get a bloke from the Melody Maker and a bloke from Sounds and, and fly out? And I said, I can, Paul. I said, but I've got no money. He said, don't worry. You'll have money. We'll get you money. So I did. I, I took a break from my new career as a dishwasher in a burger joint. Mm -hmm. It was a posh burger joint. It was like we have a burger and a bottle of wine, you know, and, and the waitresses were all gorgeous and we played music. And, you know. and um, I flew to New York with Steve Gett from Melody Maker and Pete McCoskey from Sounds. Mm -hmm. I had five pounds in my pocket when I arrived in New York. I had to get the boys to pay for the taxi into the hotel. When I got to the hotel, Paul Clark took me up to his suite and he counted out a month's money. And in those days, we used to charge Black Sabbath £500 a month. And at that point in the US, the dollar, it was $2.6 for every pound. So uh, £500 in US dollars turned into... What is that? I don't 1,300 US dollars? It's quite a bit at that time. In yeah. cash. In cash. And I'm in the Waldorf Astoria mm -hmm. in a suite. I've got two double beds in my suite and a colored TV in the bog, you know, and a, and, and a chauffeur-driven limo for the weekend. And, um, uh, yeah, so that was really good. Can you imagine? I was walking around New York at a time when it was really dangerous with... $1,300 in cash in my pocket. I didn't even have a wallet or 
just to be fucking pocket. This was know? shortly after the uh, the release of that film, The Warriors, which depicted all the uh, the turf wars yeah. that went on in in Manhattan at the time. It was a year later. It was a year yeah. later. Yep. Um, and 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 it was really hairy, but I loved it. I loved it. I'm in New York, mm. and then I turned that three day trip into New York into a two week visit. Um, because I lied and told, because again, you know, you know, that they loved British music journalists because record companies had oodles of dough and nothing to spend it on. And so um, I got to see David Bowie in The Elephant Man by posing as a British music journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a, a year's membership to the Ritz Club, which I only used once. Um, I was interviewing, I interviewed Sam and Dave, I interviewed one of the Kinks. Then I flew to San Francisco to hook up with one of my all-time favourite groups in those days, Split Ends. Ah. Uh, I'd done a story on Split Ends. Oh, no, 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 this is the story on Split Ends, right. So, uh, um, oh, yeah, I'd seen them play in, in the UK and reviewed them and just thought they were fantastic. So I met up with them in San Francisco and they remembered me from that. And me and Neil Finn, where our birthdays are like days apart. Uh, and, and we all just got on great. And so I stayed with them. We then went on to L.A. And um, I wrote this big story. And they loved the story so much, they called me and said, would you like to write a book on us? And I went, yeah, no. Mm-hmm. What did I say? I went, I would love to do it. There's nothing more I would love to do. Do or die. Never written a book in my life. No idea how to go about it. Mm-hmm. I said, yes. And, uh, and that was the beginning of me realizing uh, the dishwashing gig might have to go. So I, as I difficult as it was to, to turn your back on the uh, the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was really enjoying the dishwashing gig. I loved no responsibilities. Yeah. I mean, I ended up living with one of the waitresses a couple of years later. Yeah. But I mean, I fucked a couple first. You know, I mean, it was. I, it was just, at certain points, I was sleeping on the floor at the restaurant in the upstairs office and banging waitresses. I mean, with ten pounds in my pocket. You know, so hunching above yeah. your weight, mate. That's. Yeah, pretty good return. <laughs> so, um, leaning on my PR connections, I called the editor at Sounds, who I'd given yeah. many of the time to, and just said, Alan, listen, I need a gig. Let me write something. He goes, Well, I've got a lot of writers. And I said, Alan, where I've been in PR for two years, trust me, I know more about these people than any of your fucking writers. Mm-hmm. I don't care about punk, I don't care about the truth or the kids. Fuck the kids. Fuck all that. I just want to write some fantastic rock and roll stories. He said, done. And the first thing I did was Thin Lizzy, who I knew really well from the PR days. And it just went, it really just fucking took off. Suddenly, my first stint, I've been a low string, a low rung stringer. Occasional features, but, you know. Now I'm writing all the cover stories. And uh, within a few months, I mean, I wrote about funk music, jazz, mainly rock, some punk. But then the rockabilly, Stray Cats came along and the rockabilly thing took off. And I loved all that. So now I'm the rockabilly guy. And I loved it because they were kind of punk in the sense that they were young and not 
old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. I mean, rockabilly. I mean, ultimately old-fashioned. But these were kids doing stray cats. I mean, I was in Berlin with the stray cats. We had a fantastic time. I remember the tour manager came into the dressing room. I'm in the dressing room. He comes in before the show, and he literally goes, there's three of them and me, right? So he comes in. He's got a handful of grams of Coke, and he goes to the band. He goes, one for you, one for you, one for you, and one for you, me. Gonk. Yeah. So not quite punk, but with all the edge of that world, but these American guys and Coke is... Can you imagine being with Paul? I, I knew Paul. I didn't know him. I met him a few times in those days. Miserable, boring, judgmental, fucking anal cunt, right? Mm. No one fucking liked him. No one still likes him except the people with their heads up his ass. This, this, this. Imagine going, Paul, Paul, one gram of Coke for you, one for you, Bruce Foxton. They'd be like, oh, no, that's uh, that's rockist. That's, no, we are, you know, fuck off. You know, give it to me. So um, loved all that. And then, um, and then I couldn't get a job on the staff at Sounds. And lazy fuck that I was. I was sharing a flat with Sandy Robertson, who was a fantastic writer. He was a fair few years older than me, and I learned so much. You know, before I shared a flat with Sandy, if I was writing, like I told you, I'd be writing and rewriting, and mm. oh, you know, Sandy would put the. I used to write notes, and then I would type, and Sandy would put a piece of fucking paper in that typewriter, and he'd go, "He's Scottish." And he'd sit me, Mick, <laughs> bash that shape out, and he go. There's your feature. Fuck me, man. That's you know. So next thing, I'm bashing the shite out, mm-hmm. and of course, it, well, it's like it's like uncorking the dam or something. It's just whoosh. and um, had a great time. But he is getting every month. He gets his lump sum of dough. I'm so jealous. Next thing, Virgin Records have a job going as a press officer. And after heavy publicity, I got offered jobs with all the major record companies because I was known as that great PR. You know, if he can get PR for Black Sabbath and Journey, imagine what he could do with the Human League and and Japan and Culture Club, you know. So Virgin offered me a job, and it was more money than Sandy was getting. Mm. I just went, I'll take it. And it should have been a perfect job. It was a great time to be at Virgin. Um but by that time, me and Sandy were, were deep into what we used to call Henry, as in Henry the horse, mm-hmm. as in the gear that makes you queer, yeah. as in the, are you going to take some smack or are you the most enormous bender I've ever met in my life? <laughs> I mean, obviously said with a certain amount of irony and postmodern non-PC humour, but nevertheless, uh, and, and that was the thing where my values and my do or die and everything, that just went out the fucking window because it does with that drug. The minute you become addicted, you know, all the game is over. Mm-hmm. There's only one way it's going to go and it's either going to go there real quick or real slow. And um, I eventually got sacked from Virgin um, I'd been there about eight months when I got eight, nine months when I got sacked. 
I got sacked because I was a junkie. Yeah. They didn't say that. They said we've had a number of complaints from managers of bands. And um, and then the conversation moved on to that. And that was pretty devastating. Because actually, I just got clean. I had just got clean. I'd just gone through the cure for the second time. And I was in that good place. Mm-hmm. And I was working hard and things were happening. Um, but the overlap, you know, it caught up with me. Um, I, uh, yeah. So, um, so that was a bad scene. But um, so I signed on, uh, moved into another flat in Acton with some other lunatics. And Flexi Pop, which was a, a new magazine that did purely pop music, but it used to come with, way before your time, it used to be a thing called a, a Flexi Disc. Flexi yeah. Disc. Okay. I was born, I was born in 83, Mick, so. Okay, so this is, this, is, this is a year before you were born. Okay. Um, and it, Flexi Discs, you could, you could sometimes the enemy or someone would, would put one on their cover as a giveaway once a year or something. Yep. And you took it off, and it was literally this thin shit bit of plastic. You put it on your turntable, and in the most crackly, appalling way, it would play some music. Uh-huh. So they built a magazine around it and called it FlexiPop. And uh, they, they needed writers, and, and in their stupidity, they rang me. And because um, I was a good writer, I mean, all those stories I'd done for sounds on you know, front cover after front cover after front cover. Everybody got the four music papers in those days. Everybody, mm-hmm. especially if you're in the biz and if you're in the pop magazine business, you, you always got to see what everybody else is doing. So I was very well known in that world at that point. They didn't know I'd turned into the junkie from hell. They just knew me from those days. I realised I hadn't seen my name for a while. And thought, oh, should we ring him? He could be good. And so it was good for a few months. What I said to them was, I go to my local pub every night. They've got a jukebox, and they keep it pretty up to date. So whatever is the most popular song on the pub jukebox, why don't I do a story on that group that week? And they went, yeah, all right. And so I was doing stories on Bucks Fizz, which you've never heard of, Dollar, which you've never heard of. Uh, these were like these were like boy boy and girl bands, you know. Uh, uh, of the early eighties, you'll have to Google Bucks Fizz, Dollar, Imagination. Oh, Duran Duran. Well, I know Duran. Um, of course, we know Duran Duran. Uh, I'm looking right, up Bucks Fizz that- right now, and they definitely look like. Well, were they a British uh, version of ABBA? Because that's what they kind of look like to me. Yes. They're, they're like a very poor man's British poor, version poor of Poor man's ABBA. Okay. On the same yeah. page now. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. uh, but they had a few number one records. And I got a great kick. And after years of working with album bands and writing that kind of stuff, yeah. uh, and listening to that kind of by, by now, I mean, I've left it. I'm, I'm into Weather Report and, and Chick Corea. And I mean, jazz was really always my thing in terms mm. of being a fan. Um. So for me, it was wonderful kind of yin-yang where I was taking mescaline and listening to Weather Report where the music would come out of the speakers and undulate around me and give me visions of God. And then the next day going off to interview Bucks Fizz about their new single, I Love You, You Love Me, Oh How Happy We Will Be, you know. Um, But hanging out with these two blonde birds, obviously no fucking talent whatsoever, Mm. 
but pretty and blonde really? and fun. I didn't have to pretend I liked their fucking album or their new song about the meaning of life was great because they didn't write songs. Mm-hmm. They barely sang. I mean, you know, they just look good. What's not to like? Um, so that was pretty good. Um, but then, unfortunately, I relapsed and got back into the bad one. Henry. Mm-hmm. Henry, yeah. Um, and then, beginning of 83, I, I was, this was do or die. I knew if I didn't stop, I was going to die. Not just, like, physically, but my life is over. You know, mm-hmm. that, that guy I mentioned from Mount Olympus, the great mentor, I remember he rang me one night and said, do you want to come down the pub? I, I, and the pub, it was five minutes walk from where I was, and I wouldn't go. Because when you're on heroin, you, you can't drink alcohol. And, and when you're deep, deep, you don't want to be sitting in a crowded room with people having a good time. You know, it's just your idea of hell. Mm. But I remember in turning him down, it, it, it really brought it home to me how fucking terrible my life had become how i had become what a cunt i was so at that point i took the third cure and this time it took a long time uh, but i stuck with it stuck with that motherfucker and then the thing that really saved me was i met a girl and she'd never done heroin in her life in fact she was a speed freak i didn't know that at first she was just incredibly good looking she was greek and, you know, you talk about the perfect 10. She was she the was perfect 11. 10. She was, she was. Man, she went all the way to 11. <laughs> Filthy as fuck. I mean, I remember being in a call box, ringing someone in the middle of the afternoon, and she got down and gave me a blowjob while I'm ringing, you know, the dole office to get my benefits or whatever the fuck it was, you know. I mean, that was a trip. But she was an art student, at St. Martin's Mm -hmm. and um, and she just led me a merry dance Um, and then you know she ended up fucking all these guys at art college by which time I'm back doing dishes I'm working for a catering agency because I don't want to go back to music journalism I'm reading Henry Miller (laughs) you know (laughs) I'm reading Tropic of Cancer. I want to be in Paris in the 40s and 30s, penniless, but writing immortal prose by night, you know. Mm. So that's what I'm doing. But in order to earn a buck, I'm working for a catering agency under an assumed name because I'm also signing on. So because I'm working under an assumed name, I've lied to them and told them I've been in Australia for a couple of years, and that's why I have no social security and... Don't forget, no computers. It would take months to find the right card. And, and they're an agency. Who can be fucked? Send the cunt out and just get the money in. But it meant I was always on what they called emergency tax because I had no tax code. So I was always paying far more tax than I should. Mm-hmm. The idea being when your tax code comes through, you get a rebate. But I knew it never would because I was well, under no tax code. I was working as a guy that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing this and kind of getting off on it, thinking, you know, I'm a wild one. I'm a wild gypsy boy. I'm writing my fucking... I'd applied to be a mature English student. Um, University of London? uh, Yeah, Yeah. Queen Mary's College, which was very weird because a couple of years ago, my eldest daughter, 
uh, one of the colleges she looked at was Queen Mary's in London, and I went with mm. her. <sighs> <laughs> um, I never did that in the end, but um, and I'm I'm working at Heathrow Airport. I remember I was working at Heathrow Airport doing the seven a.m. seven a.m. to three p.m. shift. I'm washing the pots and pans, and they're gigantic for the food they make for the shit you eat on the plane. And so it's all mass, a lasagna thing. It's like, it's literally four feet deep. Mm -hmm. And it was a 24-hour shift, seven till three, three till 10, 10 till seven. It was 24 hours. So whatever time you turned up on whatever shift, there was always literally a mountain of these giant, filthy, disgusting pots with sinks that would go from your ankles to your chest. And you'd be up to your shoulders with a scouring brush. Ooh, ooh, for eight hours, leave, come back, same. I've still got a little scar on my head where one of these things fell and hit me. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'm doing all this. Meantime, she started her mature student art course at St. Martin's, and she's hanging out with, you know, can, I mean, this is now 1983, so you've come along. I've come along. whole fucking world has changed. Oh, yeah. You guys, you guys have come along and, and turned it into the 80s. And she's sitting around. I've come home from, from Heathrow Airport, fucking shattered after eight hours of giant pots and pans. And I could tell she was ashamed of me because she'd be sitting around with Sebastian and fucking Alexander and mm -hmm. Julian. And, well, yeah, and they're all talking. Funny. I just got back from the van. Just got back from the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam. It was amazing. Yeah. Thinking about going to New York next year. Have you seen my painting? You know. Oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm Heathrow Airport doing pots and pans, you know. But I'm a writer, really. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I could see it not working in her eyes. And so because of that, I literally I remember I had to go under the bed to find my old contacts book. She was a filthy motherfucker, man. She would pull her tampons out so you could fuck her and throw them under the bed, and they would just stay there. So I got my arm under the bed looking for my old contact. Was like, ah, yeah, ah, you know. <laughs> found it, rang a couple of people up, and I, um, Time Out magazine, which was a great magazine, mm -hmm. um, I knew someone there. And he said, uh, yeah, we, listen, you could do a little interview. We've got this guy. There's this new group. Have you heard of them? They're called The Smiths. I went, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'd actually seen them. And they had their mm -hmm. first single out. They said, uh, could you interview their singer? It's just on the phone, I'm afraid. Nothing was on the phone in those days unless it was, you know, had to be. I went, that's fine. Um, I said, what's his name? He said, Morrissey. Went, well, that's his first name? I went, that's all we've got, Morrissey. So I'm on the phone to this guy and I go, so what's your real, what's your name? I said, what's your proper name? He went, Morrissey. I went, no, no. He went, Stephen. I said, all right, Stephen. Right. So, um, and I asked him, he started talking about Coronation Street in the North. And I was like, you know, this guy's a bit of a fucking loser. Um, but so am I. And so I had a bit of a laugh. I wrote the thing. They published it. Looked really lovely. But at the same time, I'd run Malcolm Dome, who was now on this new thing called Kerrang! magazine. Yeah. And I said, uh, what are you Spun looking out for? out of Sounds magazine, right? 
Yeah. I mean, I was, th I was there when Kerrang! was invented. How it came about was uh, in Sounds in 1981, mm -hmm. I'm now... Uh, I also, I started writing about heavy metal. Not because it was my favourite music or anything like that. It just it was an opportunity. No one would touch it. So I came in. Alan had said to me, look, you can do Thin Lizzy. We, we really need someone to cover the rock stuff. And we're done. Mm. So, um, uh, and then in the other corner was Eric Fuller and Vivian Goldman, and they always did uh, reggae. And then there was Gary Bushell, who was writing about punk, uh, what used to be known as Oi. Oi, Oi! Yeah. Yeah, Exploited. Uh, sham 69 yes sham 69 yeah absolutely so in those days if you rang sound you went to a switchboard and they just pushed it through to whatever phone whoever picked up so in order to sort of as a joke but it also was useful to let the whoever was ringing let them know what part of the office they had arrived in eric fuller who was very posh but covered reggae mm -hmm. would answer the phone he'd go bomb bomb diddly because because he would be like oh bomb pompadiddly guns in a brixton mm. you know i and i you know he's that kind of guy rastafari you know. so he'd pick up the phone and go bomb bombadiddly and if gary bushel answered the phone he would go oi, oi. <laughs> and as a joke as a joke me and pete mikowski because he was there if we answered the phone we would go Danang! or Kalang, or we started to settle on Kerrang, mm -hmm. or it could be Danang, you know, just Danang. And um, so when uh, the idea of doing a one-off, what should we call it? Just, why don't we call it Kerrang? Everybody went, that's a terrible fucking name. Oh, no, you can't call it that. Let's call it that. And it was just a colored pullout in the magazine. That's funny. I always thought the uh, Kerrang, or at least I believe I read this somewhere, was the sound a guitar makes when you get Kerrang. Is that? Yeah. Well, that's what yeah. we used to do. Like, we used to go, Danang. All right. Yep. Kerrang. And then Kerrang. You know, Kerrang. Yep. It's just to let them know you got through to the rock guys. Mm -hmm. And if you got, oi, oi, you were doing the punk stuff with Gary. You've got, bomb, bomb, the diddly. You got through to the reggae part of the office. Makes sense. It was just yeah. <laughs> so. Two years later, whatever it is, Malcolm, who we'd I'd facilitated his first ever interview for the music press, um, he's now on Kerrang. So I rang him and I said, "Are you looking for anything?" He said, "Yeah, I'm having a tough time. We're trying to get an interview with Yes. Yes had just released the nine oh one two five album with Owner of a Lonely Heart." And I went, oh, I know those guys. He said, do you? I said, yeah, leave it with me. Now ask me, did I know those guys? Of course guys? not. So like anybody listening by now, <laughs> listening to two hours into this conversation, knows <laughs> the answer to that question, Mick. Although I did know one of them. Uh -huh. The guitarist Trevor Rabin. And okay. I knew Trevor this much because he had produced the first Wild Horses album in 1980 and wild horses was a group i did pr for wild horses were formed by brian robertson after he got fired from thin lizzy and jimmy bain after he got fired from rainbow mm -hmm. and they formed a group called wild horses and i did their press uh, for 18 months 
And again, we all got on amazingly. Me and Robbo were close to being the same age. And I'd always loved him, Lizzie. Um, so I, I literally dug out thinking, oh, there's no way. I rang this number and Trevor picked up. And I said, Trevor, do me a favour, blah, 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 blah. He went, yeah, fine. I said, right. He said, I'm in London. I said, okay, well, I'll come over. So I went over. I took my girlfriend, my Greek art student. The filthy girlfriend. Slash filthy brothel queen, mm. speed freak, with me. She brought a camera. And he's sitting on his bed while I'm interviewing him. Uh, and, and she's literally crawling all over it in this really short skirt. Like, I can't show you, but, you know, like... Uh, thighs spread and she's like oh trevor oh that's magnificent oh yeah more baby more baby you know he's just like this you know nearly got the old fella out you know mm -hmm. meanwhile i realized my ancient tape recorder isn't fucking working so i start i said you got any paper i borrow a pen and paper and i try and write down what he's saying yeah anyway um i didn't have a typewriter we had to borrow one, which had most of the keys missing. So as I'm typing, there's no key. There's just that jagged. You've never used a typewriter. Oh, I have used a typewriter. Back, back in my uh, single-digit years, I think <laughs> we had one in the house. Well, imagine, um, you know, the A, C, you know, that, they're gone. It's just the jagged spikes. Yeah. I remember I walked to the local pub, bought two pints of Guinness, came back, uh, she was growing grass plants, so I rolled up a couple of that into joints and sat there, ow, 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 from these notes I couldn't read and wrote this story, and they ran it. And um, they didn't run any of her pictures, which I was fucking thrilled about. Um, and then Trevor Rabin started ringing her to see if she'd go on a date with him, which she swore she never did. Anyway, um, uh, uh, and so then I had a choice between trying to keep pushing with Time Out or become a new writer on Kerrang! And I knew where the, the money would come. I knew Time Out was the prestige gig. Mm -hmm. But it would be like starting all over again, you know. Um, whereas Kerrang! I would go in with a lot of cachet because, you know, I gave Malcolm his fucking opening into the business. Most of these kids had grown up reading my stories because yeah. they were rock fans. Thus concludes part one of the Mick Wall story. We'll bring you part two of this epic four to five hour long conversation in another week or two. Until then, stay safe and be well. If you liked this episode, be sure to leave us a review, share it with a friend, or plain old subscribe wherever you happen to listen to it. For full episode show notes, visit nofilter.media forward slash get your rocks up. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want.